Good morning to you. It is good to rejoice with you about the goodness and faithfulness of our God. And I don't know about you, but my heart is filled with thanksgiving for what God is doing in the lives of our youth, the next generation. I'm thankful for the leadership of Benji and Connor and the many small group leaders that lead our kids. So what a beautiful morning, huh? Great morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. Man, we are getting so close to the end of Ephesians. We have one more sermon next week. But man, what a crucial topic last week and this week certainly is about spiritual battle. So we're going to talk about being armed for battle. Now, I don't know about you, but humanly speaking, if you ask me, what was the, what's the greatest one-on-one -on -one fight, one-on-one -on -one duel in the entire Bible, you got to say what? David and Goliath. Come on now. How many chapel services has there been to sports teams where the guy preached on David and Goliath? Matter of fact, as a 12-year chaplain in college and pro sports, I said, I will never preach on David and Goliath, right? Too cringy. But, man, David faced off with the Philistine giant. This giant's nine foot six, weighed over 400 pounds, had an armor of bronze that weighed 125 pounds, a 14-foot long spear with a 15-pound tip on the end of it. How in the world do you approach a fight with Goliath? How in the world do you approach a fight by a guy named, we'll call him Big G, okay? That's his brand name. Conventional wisdom of the day was that you fight fire with fire. And that is why King Saul took his armor off and tried to give it to David and said, my brother, you're going to need this. But the problem was Saul was over a foot taller than David, the scripture tells us. So it didn't fit. It was too heavy. It was a no-go. But as Paul Harvey would say, we know the rest of the story. David refuses the armor of Saul to keep himself agile. As Chad's dad, my high school football coach, used to say, agile, mobile, and hostile. And he charged into battle along with five smooth stones and a leather sling. At the end of the day, Big G laid stone cold, pun intended, dead on the battlefield. David was the victor that day because of two reasons. One, he abandoned conventional wisdom and armament. And two, he chose to arm himself with weaponry suitable for the fight against this very, very unique foe. Now, for you and I this morning, as we continue this discussion on spiritual armor and the battle that we're in as believers, we need to dial into this wisdom because you and I fight an enemy who is far more capable and lethal than the Philistine giant. Matter of fact, I thought about this and I've thought often about this. If you and I could peel back the eternal curtain for 90 seconds, it would freak us out. To see General Satan and his evil, drool, 
dripping lieutenants clearly. And I think if we did, if we got that mindset, if we saw the battle going around in the unseen eternal, I think we would never, ever again rely on our own conventional wisdom and methods, meaning ourselves. And we would lean hard into the armor that we're going to talk about this morning. So before we get into the details of the armor, I want to backtrack a few verses, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Monty did an incredible job with that last week, unpacking that for us. But the reason I want to go back, I have a healthy fear for me <laughs> and for you, because I know me, and if I know me, I think I know you, that we will forget the reality of this unseen war that goes on 24-7 every day until Christ returns. Here's what, and I don't want us to forget, here's what Paul said uh, in verse 10. Here, and here's the deal too. As a Christian, if we don't see this clearly, we become a victim of the war, not a victor in the war. So in verse 10, Paul says, you better not rely on yourself. <laughs> Conventional wisdom Throw it out the door. Finally, be strong in who? The Lord, not in you. Verse 11, you better not leave one piece of the armor I describe off because the devil is scheming and game planning to take you and I out spiritually. Verse 12, he says, our battle is not conventional. It's not horizontal. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not people. But look, I don't know how about you, but it can, if it weren't for that person, I would be totally fine, right? It's not conventional. It is an unseen but very real demonic war against demonic authorities and against the spiritual forces of evil. And if we're honest with each other, we feel their pull on our own hearts. You take our own sin from Genesis 3 and you the evil work of the demonic world, and we feel that. Temptations out of nowhere, twisted evil desires. Isn't it crazy the things that go through your own head? It's like, where did that come from? Lying to protect our own reputations. You know, every time we lie, we're like our father, our natural unsaved father, the devil, John 8. He is a liar and the father of lies. Spiritual coolness and disinterest, prayerlessness. In some ways, the bullets are buzzing by our ears and we're drinking lemonade and eating chocolate cake. Unaware. Hey, what was that? Satan attacks us in many ways. Here are a few. He undermines God's character. God is not good. He makes us doubt the love of God because of our own performance. He stirs up persecution in some form or fashion in our lives. He makes us vulnerable to peer pressure and the praise of man. He gives us prosperity. <laughs> prosperity is dangerous. He confuses us with false doctrine. He causes division in the church, which the whole book of Ephesians has been speaking to. 
He, he teaches us to trust ourselves to live on past food. Oh, I went to seminary. Oh, I studied the book of whatever, but not present food. To be worldly and satisfied and certainly our own pride. But what we need to do and what Paul is exhorting us to do is to not focus on what he's doing, although he's doing it, he's been doing it since the beginning, but to focus on what you and I need to do. As a wise mentor told me 30 plus years ago, he said something of this nature after our long conversation at lunch. The devil is on the hunt and he is in no hurry to take you down, but you need to remember he hunts every single day. He is relentless. And that's why John Bunyan, a great Christian author, said the Christian soldier must never expect to find rest in this world. <laughs> Man, that just cuts us to the throat, doesn't it? Because what do we want more than anything? Rest and comfort. He says, must never expect to find rest in this world. The Christian soldier will never hear orders to relax his guard or to put his armor aside. Never. Now, Monty, last week, I thought, made a great point. You made a lot of great points, but one of them was this. We're not telling you these things to scare you. Healthy fear, yes, to make you freak out, no. And I, and I love what C.S. Lewis says about this, about the evil one. He says, there are two equal and opposite eras into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both eras. And I have erred on both sides of those. I've made way too much of his power, and I have acted as if he did not exist. So we want to be in that middle ground. It is real. There's a battle to fight, and Paul exhorts and commands us in verse 13, Monty's last verse last week, to do what? To put on the whole, the entire armor of God. So what is that armor of God? Let me read our text for us this morning. <clears throat> verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer, and supplication through 18a, the first part of 18. So, as Paul, Monty mentioned this last week, sits in prison and he writes the book of Ephesians, he looks over at a Roman soldier who is guarding him 24-7. They keep coming out swapping shifts. And he begins to connect the metaphorical dots between a Roman soldier's armor and uniform with the reality of us fighting 
the kingdom fight, if you would. And as he does, he starts with the belt of truth, which makes sense, I think, once we unpack it. So the Roman soldier's belt was crucial because it held everything else in place. Now, in that day, it was very common. Everyone wore a tunic, including Roman soldiers. So it's a long, flowing kind of, you've seen it. I don't even want to say the word dress in 2023, but you, you know what it looks like. And if they were in, to engage in a fight, obviously it would get in the way. This is what Jesus said in Luke 12. It gives us a picture. Jesus said, be sure, he's talking about his second coming. He says, be sure you have your loins girded and your lamps burning. The girding of the loins had this idea of being ready, of taking your tunic, tunic and tying it up, if you would, so that you can move freely. You can't be ready to move fast or be ready to fight if you've got cloth flying in the wind. And so the soldier, when getting ready for a conflict, would take his belt and would cinch it, and he would take his tunic and he would pull it up underneath the belt to sort of make a mini tunic so he could move freely. This belt, as I said, held everything else in place on him, including his sword, which we'll get to in a minute. So here's what the belt of truth tells us. It says, I am ready to fight. When a Roman soldier cinched his belt and pulled his tunic up, he indicated, I am committed to this fight. I am ready to go. As Jesus mentioned in Luke 12, if you're ready for my return, gird your loins. You'll be ready. And secondly, truth holds the rest of the spiritual armor in place, and it certainly saved us, saves us from deadly and dangerous entanglements. So the belt of truth is the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about others, the truth about the future, the truth about the past, and all in between. And without it, we are lost. There is no doubt that those who have stood faithfully for the cause of Christ have had intentional belt-fastening moments on most of their days where they get up out of the bed, they sense their belt in terms of attitude and says, I am ready to fight. I am aware there is a fight and I want to fight. And I don't know about you, but I am ashamed to say there has been a many a morning over my 40 plus years of being a believer where I got up out of the bed and had no readiness whatsoever. Ever been there? No thought of God, no thought of the battle I'm in, no thought about my neediness, my dependence, and I just moved through the day. And many of those days ended in a very ugly fashion. Charles Colson <clears throat> said this, that the media industry has in in institutionalized deceit. Can everybody say amen to that? Now, this was 20 years ago. <laughs> We live in a foggy netherland of deception, he says, and yet, if truth be known, the vast majority of us, including myself at times, the first thing we do is pick up that what? That thing 
that lies to us and distracts us about what is crucial and important. I'm not telling you to go throw your phones in the trash can. But I'm telling you to wake up in the morning. Paul is telling us to wake up in the morning, fasten your belt of truth. Because a truthful life is never an accident. It's intentional. So, we have the belt of truth. The second one is the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14b. The breastplate on a Roman soldier was typically a piece of metal or even chain that covered the thorax, and its function was to protect the vital organs and obviously the heart. The righteousness associated with this metaphor is God's own righteousness, his perfect righteousness that he imputes and gives to those who trust him at the very moment of salvation. Here, here's how Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians 5. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Now the soldier typically had someone to take this breastplate, if you would, and place it over him and help him with it. And our great God, at the moment of salvation, takes the breastplate of righteousness and he places it on each believer. Our God has done that with us. He has graced us, as someone said, with perfect position. <laughs> he has graced us with positional perfection. Doesn't mean we're practically perfect. But positionally, in him we are because he has transferred the righteousness of Christ to us and transferred our sin to him. But practically, what has that got to do with spiritual warfare? I'll tell you what it's got to do. When, not if, Satan volleys flaming arrows, arrows of accusations and condemnations, to you. They may be true. They may be untrue. But no doubt that he shoots these arrows of condemnations and accusations to us, to our hearts, to take us out, to shame us out, if you would, of the kingdom of God battle, to deceive our hearts and minds about us and about God and about others. We are to take every thought captive by preaching the truth to ourselves about the great righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That's the picture here. Here's how Paul again describes that in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Somebody say amen. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments, <coughs> excuse me, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The reality is this. Imputed righteousness in Christ produces Practical righteousness in the Christian soldier. 
The reality is this. When we get that we are positionally perfect and righteous in Christ, we realize that God has made us what he's actually calling us to live out. Now, that takes time, and that's sanctification, and that's three steps forward and two steps back, and no one becomes practically righteous overnight. Matter of fact, nobody becomes practically righteous ever until glorification, but there is growth and movement in that process. God's grace to us that never, ever removes the breastplate of righteousness off of us once he has given it to us at salvation is the grace that motivates us to keep chasing hard after him. It's nearly indescribable because there's no one else in the world that operates that way toward you and I. This mental and emotional war many times that we're in cannot be won without preaching the righteousness of Christ to our own hearts. Matter of fact, I've said this before up here. It's been a while, but my favorite in all of this is, is Martin Luther. Martin Luther talked about in his uh, autobiography called Here I Stand, how the devil would accuse him. He'd lay down at night in the darkness of night. He's tired. He's emotionally drained. And he, the devil would be condemning and accusing him of all his sins. And all he could say was, they're true. And one night, as he was beginning to spiral, he stood up and he's screaming to the devil. Now, no one's around, but he talks about screaming to the evil one, says, everything you said is true. I've done it all and more. But then he talked about the righteousness of Christ. That's how we fight. So we got the belt of truth. We got the breastplate of righteousness. And we have the gospel shoes, verse 15. Now, for the Roman soldier, his war boot was crucial. Something while he only wore on duty. It was an open toed, you've seen it in movies or pictures, leather boot with a nail studded sole that tied to the ankles and wrapped up the shins with straps. Certainly, they were not made for running. I read this week where Josephus said a Roman soldier died because he tried to run in them on a brick road and fell and hit his head. They were not for pursuing an enemy, but they were for hand-to-hand combat, foot-to-foot battle with the enemy. The readiness here spoken of is a picture of being ready with our war shoes on, firmly planted on solid ground, so that the enemy cannot push us around, cannot push us back, and we can stand firm in the fight for the kingdom of God. What is it spiritually that gives us this kind of secure and sure and solid traction no matter what life brings to you and I? It is the gospel of peace, he says here in Ephesians 6. And when we talk about the gospels of peace, the scriptures give us two aspects of it. The first one is, it is peace with God. Now, Romans 5, 1 says, we've been justified in Christ, which 
has given us peace with God. God is no longer angry with those he has justified in his son. We no longer will have to bear the wrath of God at judgment. We are no longer alienated from our creator. To those that do not know Jesus, peace is the mirage. They're always looking, they're always searching, but it is not true for the Christ follower. <clears throat> for us who have been reconciled to God via Jesus, we have peace with God. Where before we were an enemy of God, we were an enemy of God like Satan and his demons are an enemy with God. But not only do we have peace with God, the second aspect, we also have the peace of God. Matter of fact, on Jesus' final night on earth, John 14, he says these words to his followers. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. The God of the universe gives us perfect peace. It is a peace from above, not humanly produced. And because of that, it has the ability to rise above all of our difficulties and circumstances that surround you and I. Peace in the midst of a storm. In Philippians 4, Paul puts it this way. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is available to every believer. An Old Testament scholar, I loved how he put this. He said, it's a well-being. One hymn writer said, it is well with my what? Soul after his wife and daughters died. Soldiers of Christ who have first peace with God, and then they are experiencing the peace of God, they are girding their feet with, like the powerful soldiers in a kingdom fight. They stand firm. They are faithful and immovable, no matter what the enemy throws at them. Many of you have heard, how many of you have heard that Tim Keller passed away a couple of days ago? I can't recommend enough. Some of his books were, have been transforming for me and my wife, The Meaning of Marriage, Counterfeit Gods, The Prodigal God, The Reason for God. Just pastoring pastors from afar. <laughs> you are a beneficiary of that, I hope. But he said this years ago as he wrote the book, walking with God through pain and suffering. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything is going to be what? All right. He not only lived that, not only said it, but he lived it and he died saying it. There is something about the truth of knowing Christ that not only gives us certainly positionally peace with God, but the peace of God because Jesus rose from the dead, and we know ultimately everything will be all right. Man, if you're, if you're rebelling against God, if you're neglecting God, if you're cool and distanced from God, I, I want to tell you, you won't experience the peace of God. You could be a believer and have peace with God, but not experience the peace of God. Soldiers 
who don't experience the peace of God, who's not walking with him, they, they, they panic when a battle approaches. They give in to the temptations. They, they, they get stirred up and spiral out of control easily. They do not run to the battle. They do not stand firm. They run away from it. And I don't know about you, but in the history of wars, a lot of wars were lost because of bad shoes and therefore bad feet, injured, frozen, broken. Don't let it be true of us. You put those gospel peace shoes on. Fourthly, the shield of faith, verse 16, verse 16. The shield here was a four-foot high and two-and-a-half-foot-wide shield, much like a small door. Uh, and I found out there was a common saying, according to Josephus, from a Roman mother to their sons as they went off the war. I thought this was interesting. Take care that you return with your shield or on it. What was she meaning? She was meaning, make sure you either come back to me alive or if you die, you, they put you on your shield and, and bring you back versus rotting in somewhere in the countryside. So the soldier could bend and literally protect his entire body as it absorbed javelins and arrows of the enemy, these, these flaming arrows that Paul speaks of. These huge shields would return from battle, and one writer said they looked like roasted porcupines with all the smoke and arrows sticking out from them. This is the picture Paul has in this metaphor, that our enemy, Satan, and his demons continually launch volleys of blazing arrows at us. Here's what he does. He tempts us with something to make it look so luscious and as we can't do without it. And then when we go with the temptation, as soon as we sin, he says to us, how could you call yourself a Christian and do that? He condemns us. And we fall for it. Anybody, am I the only one? You need this. You want this. And then look at you. You're a sorry thing to call yourself a Christ follower. But our shields of faith, Paul is saying, are to rise up and protect us. One writer said, we are assaulted with hot shafts of sensuality foul and diseased eras of degrading passions, smoking eras of materialism. And as the arrows fly toward us, I think our rationalization skills kick in, and they sound like this. If God did not want me to have or to see this, then why did he make me with such a desire for this thing, for this person, for this pleasure? You feel that? At that moment, we are to raise our shields of faith. And as we raise our shields of faith, here's another metaphor on the back of that, is the truth and word of God that may say something like, it is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, 1 Thessalonians 4. And so in doing so, this shield of faith rises and we choose to believe that 
versus what our enemy is tempting us with. And I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, we must pray for the gift of faith, meaning to believe God and his truth found in his word, for the power to go on believing, not in the teeth of reason, but in the teeth of lust. <laughs> That's when we raise our shields of faith. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say over a believer's lifetime, tens of thousands of eras to try to take us out, lofted toward us, volleyed toward us. But it is our faith, our trust in Christ and his word that allows us to stay in the fight. So we got the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, the shield of faith, two more, the helmet of salvation. As I was reading this week, I did a little Roman history searches, and I found a guy by the name of Stephen Ambrose, a famous war historian, and he, he said this. He said, all war is horrifying, especially ancient war. Soldiers knew that soon they'd be facing razor-sharp weapons, being thrusted at their vitals, followed by hand-to-hand, breath-to-breath combat a bloody fight to the end, set to the terrible music of the howls and moans of dying men on a battlefield. Trembling, the soldier begins to dress for battle. And when I read that, I thought that's exactly how you and I ought to get up every morning with that kind of expectation for the day. This is the mindset Paul wants us to have as he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. In doing so, this next weapon is the helmet of salvation. Now, no Roman soldier's uniform was complete or armor was complete without the helmet. It was a natural part of it. I, I, I thought about all the prep work it goes into getting ready for a college football game but I wasn't running on the field until that helmet was on and snapped, right? And it was that final piece, if you would. All right, it's time to roll. That's part of what's going on here. Our helmet of salvation placed on our heads by the nail-pierced hands of Christ at our conversion assures us that whatever happens, we will be saved and will experience ultimate victory in Christ. It brings this incredible, healthy, and real optimism about the battle this side of heaven. Again, I love Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you by putting on the helmet of salvation, saving you, will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. It shouts to our souls, though you walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I am with you, I will not leave you, I will empower you, I will guide you, I will give you wisdom to navigate life this side of heaven, and I will bring you home. Maybe on another way to think about it, if a Christ follower, has confusion around his salvation. How do you think that 
helps them fight the spiritual battle on a daily basis. And the confusion goes around because you had a really bad day where you sinned. And it, it goes up and down. The confusion drives up when you sin and goes down when you don't. Paul says you can be confident. Once saved, always saved. This is a great, great benefit to you as you fight in the battle of the kingdom of God. Lastly, the sword of the spirit, verse 17b. We now have, I don't know if you've noticed this, but our first unique offensive weapon. And this metaphor comes from the Roman soldier's famous double-edged short sword. It was a, in their day, it was a game-changing weapon for hand-to-hand -hand close combat. The text tells us that this sword is the Word of God. Because the Scriptures come from, 2 Timothy 3 tells us, from or by the breath of the Spirit of God. Paul wants us to understand that when we take up God's Word to fight in spiritual warfare, that you and I have the finest and perfect weapon to win every single battle. Matthew 4 and several other places in the Gospels. We get a picture here of how this works. Now, Jesus, uh, David and Goliath is probably the most famous, but maybe the second most famous one-on-one -on -one duel is Jesus and the devil. Remember that? Jesus is pulled out into the desert, and they go at it. Satan tempts him three times, and each time Jesus averted his own takedown because he quoted the word of God to the devil of hell. And as one writer said, Christ, the divine warrior, is the master swordsman. Now, I don't know about you, I want to be a master swordsman. I want to know this book, and I want to know how to use this book in battle. Obviously, it made the devil retreat. And here's the point. If Jesus, the perfect and holy God-man, battles Satan, not with fire coming out of his fingers, right? Not without smarting him or some sarcastic remark and trolling him, but he fought him with the word of God, the sword of the word. How much more do you and I as frail men and women need to wield that same sword in order to be victorious? How crucial is it for you and I to do what the psalmist says in Psalm 119? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Here's how the Apostle John put it. And remember, the Apostle John was boiled in oil and was abandoned and left for dead on a deserted island to die in his old age. And here's what he writes. I write to you because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Strong soldiers of Christ 
have the word of God living in them because they have dove in this book. They have wept in this book. They have studied this book. They have prayed this book. They have memorized this book. They have asked questions about this book. They, their books are worn out, but their heart for the fight is not. <laughs> It's crucial. You can't live on past food. You got to live on daily bread. I can't say that to you stronger than that. Soldiers of Christ, Paul would summarize, arise and put on the whole armor of God. And then lastly, here's what Paul does. Paul tells us to, as we are, putting on the armor to fight well this side of heaven, to finish faithfully, to finish strong, to grow into Christ's likeness, to, to, to be like Tim Keller in the sense that when he died, the Lord Jesus says to him, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Paul says there's got to be a posture and it's a, not a worldly posture. It's a posture of dependence as evidenced by prayer. Again, a lot of thoughts about Tim Keller the last few days. A group of pastors asked him, I remember this like it was yesterday, asked him, what lesson in ministry do you wish you would have learned earlier? Now, being Tim Keller, they thought he would give some long and profound answer. And instead, he gave a one word, but very profound answer. He said, prayer. A few years ago, when I heard that, I thought, me too. Me too. The spiritual battle we are in in this world over time, over time after getting your teeth kicked in, and getting pummeled because you have not put on the armor. There's something about it that makes us put on the armor. And then every armor we put on, we bathe it with prayer. Lord Jesus, help me fight well for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> this morning, I want, to, I want to give you this so what. And the so what is this. There's two of them. One is... I want you to think very specifically about how you do, you do not recognize that there is an unseen war going on. Like just think about your sort of posture, mindset, awareness, that how that needs to take another step to remind yourself you're in a war. And after doing so, I want you to pick, simply pick one um, armament one piece of armor and think that's the one I gotta work on. Take a minute, ask yourself the question, so what?
Jesus, we come to you this morning, and there's no doubt we need help, and you have given us help. You've not only commanded and instructed us what to do, but you've given us the tools and the armor, as in this context, to do it. And we said many a time up here to ourselves privately and publicly, you provide everything we need to do everything you've called us to do. You've called us to walk with you faithfully. You've called us to fight well this side of eternity. You've, you have called us to live for eternity. And to do that, Lord, our minds need to change. How we think needs to change. Our hearts need to change. Our posture needs to change. And more than anything, we need to get out of our own way. We need to lean hard on you and less on us. Help us to be a body that is moving together in that direction, fighting, fighting well for the kingdom of God and the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. Everyone said, Amen.